Hi there, and welcome to How To with Ann Malum. When deciding to do this podcast, I really wanted to create something that could give people real tools on how to execute on certain things. So often we talk about things on such a macro scale that yes, leaves people inspired, but with no real idea on what the steps are to make something in their own life happen. I challenge and encourage and probe my amazing guests to get granular and specific on their strategies, their mindset, their tactics, and their methodologies so that you can learn practical, actionable steps to best optimize your confidence, career, health, and wealth. Hey, everybody. I am Ann Malum, and welcome to the podcast. As you know, I have one goal here, and it is to help you achieve ultimate optimization in your career, health, and wealth. And every single guest I bring on the show has a proven track record of success in these areas. And we are going to share specific actionable items that can help you optimize your own life. Today, we're really fortunate to have Chuck with us today. Chuck is the founder of Climb Leadership International and, and coaches executives on public speaking, emotional intelligence, and executive presence. He is a top speaker, Amazon bestselling author, and talk radio shows of a top radio host of A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. He coaches leadership development at Columbia University's Graduate School of Engineering, and he's passionate and an accomplished mountaineer. Today, we are going to talk about how to start, aka climb the mountain, before you are ready. Chuck, welcome to the show. And thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Can we just get started by first you giving a little bit of background, a few minutes on on who you are and and what you want the listeners to know about you. Yeah, no, I appreciate. Thank you. Who I am is the luckiest man on earth. I am very blessed and that every day I get to go to work in the service of someone else's success. As toward what I do to get there, it was a very long twist and turn up a whole lot of unexpected mountains. But I am, as you stated in the bio, I spend 60% of my time coaching at the executive level. I help people with one of two things. I help them to become much better public speakers. I help them to learn and understand a subject called emotional intelligence. In other words, I teach the juxtaposition of the two to help people stay calm under the weight of enormous expectations. So I do that privately for myself and my company called Klein Leadership. And I'd spend about 20% of my time teaching wonderful graduate students at Columbia University the same thing that I do at the executive level. Well, first off, I let this all sounds wonderful, but the thing I love most about what you just said is the specificity in what you do. And one of the things I have learned in life when people say, oh, I just, you know, I coach people to make them better. It's so ambiguous up there that people don't know if that person is the right coach for you, what they really do. And you were so specific in what you help people do. Did that come naturally for you to get to hone in on those those particular things, how you get people to be better public speakers, how you get them to foster and grow and, and harness their emotional emotional intelligence? I can't say it came naturally, but it did come through the weight of my own experience. Mm -hmm. I spent the majority of my career before I do what I did at, at two, two organizations. I was very early in a company called Bloomberg. As my, mm -hmm. most people know Mike Bloomberg for anyone in New York, he was the mayor of New York for three terms. But I spent years as the company's public spokesman. But the reason I say that is I it's not something I was trained to do. I was a finance major in college with the dream of going to Wall Street. But what I found is when I twisted and turned to become that speaker, when I was in high school, in college, all they talked about, you got to be well-rounded, you need to know a lot about a lot of things. And then I got into my career and what I found, I can suck at a hundred things. But when I mastered one, my career ascended beyond my wildest mm -hmm. dream. And I think that's why, Anne, when I meet many people who ask me advice, they want to coach. And I say, why do you want to coach? I want to help people be all they can be. And I said, just what does that mean? I know for the people that I coach, Anne, there is expectation, there's pressure, and there's an expected outcome. And so I cannot work with someone and say, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to help you be all you can. 
that you are perfectly spot on. That doesn't work. When I coach someone, we need to know what it is we are coaching them to do. And the reason I stay focused on public speaking and emotional intelligence, because I learned that's what I did for a living. I stepped on stages all over the world. I've had microphones in my face in press conferences, people asking me all kinds of questions that I didn't have the luxury to get wrong. So what I learned is the juxtaposition of communication and how to manage my emotions to stay calm under the pressure, like a good athlete, like a good politician, like, like you as an entrepreneur for all the great things you've done. Think about not only what you have done externally when you communicate what you do, so much of that is driven by who you are inside mm -hmm. and your ability to stay calm, to keep your composure and your temper in spite of the fact that the world is going to try to draw you in to anger and derision and everything else. So what I found in my business, if you stay niche and you're great at the niche, that is a hundred times more valuable than being mediocre at 10 things. And I want to stay on this topic because it is so relevant and, and everybody who's listening, whether you are an employee, whether you have your own business or or not. One of the books I'm reading right now, Chuck, is the Harvard Business Review book around, you know, the hundred sort of best articles. And one of these articles specifically talks about that. Very few people can get specific about what it is they're very good at and the environment in which that they thrive. I'll give you an example, right? People, oh, I want to work for a startup. And you get granular with those folks and you say, what is it that you like about the startup community? Well, I've never worked for one. I just think I would do really well because you see these videos on, you know, television shows or you hear people talk about it and you hear about all the valuations. But to be really good in a startup, you have to be super pliable. You have to be really able to deal with change and pivot. You have to have excellent, almost optimal cr critical thinking skills, problem solving skills. Like it is very different than walking into a structured environment. And most people would never be able to articulate that that's why they do well in that environment. Or tell me what you're really good at. They, they live up in the meta. And I mean, I've hired a lot of people. I've also fired a lot of people because when you're doing interview processes like this, with folks, they, you don't get specific enough around skill sets. And if I ask anybody, how are your critical thinking skills? Everybody says, oh, they're good. Because everybody thinks that they're good. And Couldn't it's just, agree. Couldn't yeah. agree. But think about also, Anne, I think there is, there is, there's an implication here. And I, it's not that I want to take a shot at formal education. I want to consider my own. And when I thought about I went to Syracuse University, it was a very good college experience. But when I think about what did I do? I crammed, I examined, and I regurgitated. That is what mm -hmm. we did in formal education. And then I got to Wall Street, and, and right out of, out of Syracuse, I was recruited to a very big bank. And every day I went home scratching my head, wondering, when are they ever going to talk about anything they ever had in the classroom? Sadly, that day never came. Because what we found is, in spite of whatever formal education points us to, when we actually get out into the world, Take a look at the LinkedIn top five soft skills that are on display all the time. Number one, what do employers want? Creativity. Number two, persuasion. Number three, collaboration. Number four, adaptability. And number five, my favorite, it finally made it, is emotional intelligence. When I think about my education and when I walk into my Columbia classroom, I am utterly, completely, 100% focused on what the marketplace is telling you this is what companies reward. And I would imagine in your experience, all the people that you hired and you fired, did you ever hire someone because they could regurgitate a bunch of knowledge on an exam? I suspect not. No. Right. So what I do, I think about the failings of my own education and how in spite of enjoying the college process and, and, and growing up and finding who I am, it wasn't until I was in my career and I started climbing mountains that it occurred to me, oh my God, I had clarity of thought around what we do and how people like you and I can contribute to the world. 
And it's not that we want to throw out the playbook of what got us here. I just think that we stand for a cause that is utterly practical, that is valuable. And, and you can put your finger on the pulse of the marketplace simply to recognize what you and I do for a living is to help other people bring out something specific that makes them valuable to you or to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, can you say those again? Because I I only got three. Creativity. So so you if you if you go to LinkedIn and you look okay. at what are the top five soft skills that appear in more job ads across the LinkedIn universe? Creativity, persuasion, collaboration. One, two, and three. Look at number four, adaptability. Even more important in the COVID world. Forget about your career, it's just life. And then number five, emotional intelligence. Thank yeah. God, praise the Lord, that EQ finally made it onto that list. And can you define emotional intelligence for us? Sure. Emotional intelligence is a social science that addresses the social, personal, and survival skills of a human being. By that, what I'm describing is as human beings, we wake up in the morning, we feel before we think. However, people teach us to think, they don't teach us to feel. It's just not something that we walk around thinking, how am I going to learn how to feel? Emotional intelligence helps each of us to understand a set of tools that measures our intelligence in one of four ways. Self-awareness, mm -hmm. social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. So to all of our listeners, think about if you were to draw a box and you were to have those four parts, how self-aware are you? That's the first one. Am I aware of the impact I have on others? Am I aware of when I lose my temper, what is the implication to the person on the other side of that discussion? Socially aware. When I read a room, when I walk into, for all the speeches, when you gave your TEDx talk, you stood on that stage and you looked at that audience. Could you read the audience? That's social awareness so that you understand how to be sensitive if they're not listening or having a bad day. And EQ helps people very much understand the nature of their behavior and provides a series of tools how to help them get better at each of those boxes and then use that as a basis for, in my world, helping them to communicate in a way that they feel themselves and they feel you the audience or the person on the other side of the discussion. Would you agree with this statement, Chuck, that there isn't one person out there that is successful that doesn't have a high level of emotional intelligence, but there are several people out there who wouldn't score high on SATs, ACTs, <laughs> the book intelligence that we, that the entire school system you know, you don't get awards in school for emotional intelligence. You get for grades, test scores. But in the real world, I know so many people, myself included, I was an average test taker. Like I got good grades because I worked hard. But, you know, I, 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 th it was not just like school was so easy for me, straight A's, whatever. But I know that my emotional intelligence levels are probably within the top you know, 1% of people out there. I know that about myself. You're singing my song, Anne. In fact, when we think about the evolution of this social science that started in the 90s, it was written by a guy named Daniel Goldman. The book that he wrote was simply called Emotional Intelligence. And there was a very apt quote, and it, I think it applies as much in the last three years as it does in the last generation. And it's that CEOs are hired for their intellect and business experience. I'm going to pause for dramatic effect and then they are fired for their lack of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the educational model pointing us toward SATs, GPA, everything that you described, I'm not dismissing the importance of one's IQ, but when we think about, and I'm, I'm holding up my hand trying to picture a Venn diagram, think about IQ, EQ, and what Google now measures is AQ to their employees, the adaptability quotient. This is something that has evolved in my world called the career quotients. So let's just set IQ aside for just a second. What do companies do to help develop their people? The guys at Google who hire my Columbia engineering students don't need to work on IQ. They are the brightest people. They're a hundred times smarter than mm -hmm. me. 
but I have something I can teach them that redefines what it means to be smart. So by the time they go to Google or Goldman Sachs, what are those companies investing in with those employees? They don't need to help them improve the IQ. They got that. But that does not, IQ does not necessarily mean you're going to know how to motivate, you're going to know how to hire somebody, how to fire, how to speak in a boardroom. All these things that you and I have done through the course of our own entrepreneur experiences very much was rooted on our ability to connect and collaborate. So when, when I think about the people that I work with that are highly intelligent in the IQ, there's nothing unique about that. There's plenty mm -hmm. have that, but get themselves often in this heap of trouble because they don't invest in the other side of their brain. The left side is analytical. The right side is communication, collaboration, and empathy. What the career cues aim to do is to exercise and activate the right side of the brain to work in conjunction with the left. Because what I'm suggesting is the educational model is too focused on the left and dismisses often the right as irrelevant. That is nuts. But unfortunately, you and I are the product fortune. We've had our successes, but we've done it in a ways that whether we were good and me too, I was a good, I was a good student. I had a 1060 on my SAT that could barely get me into any college now. Mm -hmm. I don't care because I knew and I redefined what it meant to be smart. Right. Can you give us an example of who, you know, someone famous, someone well-known that our audience would know that has a very high emotional IQ so we can help people understand what we're talking about? No question. And she's someone we've all watched and evolved from the time that she went to college in Tennessee, got fired as a broadcaster, and it's Oprah Winfrey. When you watch Oprah interview, she is masterful at her interviews. She is so connected when you see, and it's not just her intelligence, which she is, but plenty of people can say they're as intelligent. Watch the way she operates, particularly in the interview room, and look at the way that she regards the people that she's talking to. She is so much more heart and passion than she is reason and logic. The way she connects, the questions that she asks, the ability to get deep down inside in the psyche of an individual, to be able to get the emotion out of that individual, not just the facts. I am in awe of her e EQ. It is a marvel to watch as she does what she does so masterfully, we can all learn lessons from there. That I completely agree. And and she does do that well. She she's she makes you trust her. I mean, right? Oprah's list and everything else. Oh, if Oprah's giving it, it doesn't feel like, well, she's making money off that. She comes across as genuinely wanting to share, help, educate, um, in a way that, you know, makes you want to listen to her. And it's why she's been so relevant for decades, no matter if she's on TV or not. And I think when I watch her or other people that I admire, and there, there's no lack of people out there that are successful and have high EQs, the best way that I can understand or at least express what I'm seeing is a generosity of spirit. What I do, what you have done, we go to work in the service of others. When you, when you did all of your gyms, what did you do? People came to your places to feel better, to train for a marathon, whatever it is. I'm a distance runner and a mountaineer. I understand the importance of training. But what we do as coaches, as teachers, we are here in the service of someone else's success. When I hear Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey talking, she never makes it about her. Mm -hmm. You know she is there to make it about the other person, give them the platform to be able to express their message, and to do it in a way that almost feels loving. And that's what I love about her. Absolutely amazing at it. Everyone should learn from her. Well, and how do you help people listening? How do they know if they have a high emotional IQ or not? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll state this in the first dimension of the people that I work with. I work with mostly Wall Streeters at the executive level and engineers at the college level. They tend to be highly mathematical and empirical in their approach. And to them, what I came to frame in my coaching practice is three things. 
I need to provide evidence, relevance, and consequence. So every project that I have, I have to think about that. And when you're dealing with people that are very math-oriented, what's mm -hmm. the evidence? It comes down to a measurement. And here is the best part. When it comes to emotional intelligence, of the, of the four parts of EQ that I described, self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, relationship management, just let those words sit for a minute. That's what we do all day. Here's the beauty. They can be measured. There are no lack of assessments because if you don't measure it to the people that respond to the math, they don't know how to manage it. They want to see the math improve. So there's a wonderful book called EQ 2.0 that does a wonderful job of explaining EQ in a very quick and accessible way. And then you go to their website, you can take the EQ assessment, it gives you all of your numbers and then context for how to improve it. Hmm. You work on the tools that are described in the book and you get to take it again. And if you've done well and you respond to the evidence, then you see the scores improve. But I don't care about the scores, I care about the outcome. But that is the path to help people first get in touch with, okay, what's the measure? What are the tactics or the strategies I would employ to improve my EQ? And then when you measure it again, you're validating at least in an empirical way, are we doing it right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, and that was gonna be my next question. Can people, how drastically can people change their emotion, emotional intelligence? Yeah, and, and I would say th the answer is drastically because I've, I've lived this for the last seven years and I've watched a remarkable change in people, almost transformative. What I can say that usually when people measure their EQ, the number that comes out the lowest, so let's just not, not call it the deficiency, let's call it the greatest room for improvement is in self-awareness. Hmm. People, and I don't want to insult people by saying they're oblivious. I would never be that bold, but sometimes you have to be that they don't understand when they lose their temper, when they're annoyed, all those little foibles that, that get people upset. Many are not even aware of it. They don't know when they walk into the room that they bring the weather with them and if they were in a bad meeting and it was cloudy and snowy and speaking proverbially, and then they come into another meeting and they're carrying that baggage with them, they didn't shudder it away. They didn't clear their mind. They didn't go get a cup of coffee. They just walked in and they brought that weather and then bam, next thing you know, they're pissing everybody off. Sound familiar? <laughs> of course. We've all experienced people like that. When I help people, especially when I train people in the medical profession, physicians and nurses, before you walk into that room and you have to deliver Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I'm sorry to inform you that your son has cancer, get away from that thing, go into a mirror, into a bathroom, look at yourself and start counting to three, to seven, to 20, anything. Calm down recognize what you're about to walk into. If you had a tough case two minutes before, you cannot bring that case in with you. Mm -hmm. The emotional baggage that you're about to lay on someone because you're having a bad day, no good. Yeah. So, so what I'm describing is really the behaviors of the world's great leaders who have to constantly, but like an airplane pilot, constantly adjusting to the turbulence we, I think the successful people that I coach, get very good at the adaptability of that behavior. They understand what's in front of them. They can calm the mind down to recognize the dynamic and adjust their behavior accordingly. And I had no idea this stuff even existed when I started my career. And thank God I found it. Well, and Chuck, people, this is why it's called emotional intelligence, because frankly, we've all done what you just said, right? I'll take, you know, and I'm, I'm much more aware now and you learn because you watch what happens when you take the emotions that you're feeling that you feel so justified to feel. Correct. And you think the people in front of you should understand that whether you've had a bad day or something else. 
But this is when we're when we're all feeling fine listening to a podcast, we can all agree on these things. The test is when you're when you're fuming at your partner, when some, when you feel hurt, when you feel upset, when you feel cheated, when you feel all of these things, how do you control your emotions in order to show up in the way that you that you want? And you and a lot of people let their emotions control them. Again, I've I've done that too. And you sort of can't stop the flow of going through and you get even more wild up. And I go back to the to thing I said at the beginning, which is you almost feel justified in your behavior and actions and that other people are going to be on the receiving ends of that. So emotional intelligence, like anything else, and I've said this in a recent podcast, our emotions are like muscles and they need to be worked out. They need to be practiced. They need attention. They need reflection. Why did I behave like that? Why couldn't I control myself? And, and I showed up in a way that I wasn't proud of. You know, I could put you into my Columbia classroom, man. I mean, we could, you wouldn't need a lot of prep. What you just said is what people respond to because unfortunately, we're the only ones telling them that. Mm-hmm. And, and then when they go out into the world and they find out, oh, my God, you were so right. It's about people's behaviors, how they act, how they respond, how they react. Who knew? But this is the perceptions that we frame around how do we consider the people at our gravity and who do we want on the team? I don't need brilliant people on my team. I need them to be honest, competent, and adaptable. And mm-hmm. by that, they have a high EQ. The people in my circle, the people that work with me, this is not negotiable. I am completely inflexible on that. I don't give a damn about your IQ. I don't care where you went to school. But if yeah. you're going to represent my brand, which I'm grateful that you do and that you want to, there are certain standards by which we expect in your behavior. And if somebody comes punching at you, you aren't punching back. Right. Calm down. Recognize and think about where are you in time and space? You don't have the luxury of getting people angry at you because they're angry at you and you're angry at them. The mm-hmm. world's banger. We need to do a better job to allay our fears, to displace or at least figure out a way. Even if you're angry, anger, anger is an emotional honesty. I get it. And, and, and we should all feel that we can be angry. But that is not justification to treat people in a condescending or parental manner. And that that's where I think the, the real valuable lessons of EQ comes in, that it's okay to be upset. It is not okay to treat people as if they are your punching bag because you've had a bad experience before you met them. Yeah, we there's a couple of things I want to say on that. We teach that at Solid Core when a coach will come in, you know, and they had a bad day and they're on the microphone. And they want to tell the whole class that they had such a crappy day and whatever else. And, you know, it's you forgot that these people are here paying to be here, paying you. And you've communicated in a way that you don't want to be here, that you've had a tough day. And that's just not going to fly. To your point, you're allowed to have a tough day. And if you can't show up and put that aside, you need to get a sub. You need to have somebody that's going to come in here and make sure these people are getting a positive experience, bringing energy that they paid for. This is a job and these people need that. But you can't have, you, you also can't call out, right? This is this is what it goes to of why this is so important to learn emotional IQ. If you called out and said, I can't coach again today and that's happening every week, we're going to fire you because you're not reliable. Right. So learning to control the emotions when you have a bad day when to when when to process them, when to park them aside for the next hour because you have to do X is is super key. And yeah, so I wanted to just say that piece of it that I agree people are allowed to have a bad day and and if but you can't have a bad day every day. that that tells me that you can't control your emotions in a way that's going to be effective for the job we're hiring you for. And then this. Right. No, 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 please go ahead. I was going to change. You know, I, 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 I love where you're going with this, but I want to add one other thing because this was unexpected. When people ask me, what's the best piece of business advice you ever received? Early on in my career, I had the good fortune of going to a seminar of, that where the late, great Maya Angelou was on the stage. 
And I remember something I never forgot, and, and you see it in a lot of memes and social media, but I remember when people asked her about how do you go about your business, and she said, I have learned that people will forget what I said, people even forget what I did, but they will never forget how I make them feel. And when I walked out of the room that day, and I remember I was only 23 at the time, I was early in my career, and I was so busy being wrapped up in all the things I needed to know to, to be competent. And here she was coming at it from a completely different angle. And I said, oh my God, every minute of every day then, from that day forward, when I had meetings with people, and this is before I even knew what EQ was, she was in my head. How am I going to make them feel? Am I going to feel welcome? Am I going to make them feel, feel like they're not and make them feel anxious? I was always very conscious just from that simple piece of advice to develop the mindset that when I meet someone and I greet them and I smile and I say hello and I let them know that I am present in this discussion and I'm not going to pick up my phone and I'm not going to look around, it's just you and me. Mm-hmm. That, Anne, is the entire basis and un of EQ, and unfortunately, that message is lost. Ah, to hell with it. It's, you know, how, how many tweets can you do? All the other things that distract people, I don't think there's anything that should be distracting toward how you make other people feel. Completely, completely agree, because when you think about, when I say anybody's name out loud, whether it's, again, someone you know through celebrity status or someone you know personally, you end up liking that person based off of what you just said. It's not what they know. It's not what movies they've been in. It's how they make you feel. And they might have been in that movie, but that movie ended up making you feel this is a certain way. Um, to go back to what you said about adaptability, Chuck, I think it was super interesting because I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. And one of my favorite Tony Robbins quotes is, the quality of your life is in direct correlation to the amount of uncertainty you can live with. And I see that a lot in people who are successful, not just in business, right? When I see working with them, but in life. If, if you try to create so much certainty and predictability and something comes along, because it always does, that you didn't plan for, that you don't know how to do, and if, if you value and need that much predictability and certainty, you're not gonna know how to respond to that. And that's when you get stressed and you panic and you start to elevate your voice and and what and you and then you I don't know how to do this all you do is create problems for everybody else and the people that I have seen be the most successful are able to navigate those waves they expect them to come they are preparing even though they don't know when or what the wave might look like or what the obstacle is they have put themselves in a place to expect it and they can critically think and problem solve their way through it it is so crucial. And and if if I'm working with somebody that can't do that, they're not going to have a job very long, if I'm being honest. You are spot on. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So again, guys, things for things to to work on. We haven't even gotten to the mountain stuff yet, but this is a topic that I love because, and I try to tell people, Chuck, too, I, I have had a lot of success in my life and I'm really proud of that, both professionally, relationship, whatever. And I attest it to exactly what you're talking about, which is Understand how people perceive you. What is your reputation with people? How do you make them feel? And frankly, you know, ask them, ask for some of that feedback because a lot of times our perception of, of how we think people see us isn't actually how people see us. So getting that data and information so you can be sure of the actions or behaviors that you're doing and if they're landing in the way that you actually think that they are. Uh, agreed. So let's talk about this phrase of starting when you are not ready. Do you see, you must see that all the time that people just, oh, once I, oh, once this is done, oh, once I'm, once I have this, then I'll do that. And it just remains in this bucket of someday, someday, someday. Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week. I remember I read that book just before I left my last Wall Street job to teach and to coach. I remember when I read that book, one of the things that, that, that just stayed in my head, which was something I always knew, I just liked the way he phrased it. He said, don't wait for all of the world's stoplights to turn green at the same time. And I worked for years, and as I mentioned earlier, under the tutelage of Mike Bloomberg, one of the world's great entrepreneurs. Now, he's also the smartest, most generous man I've ever known. But what you learn about Bloomberg is never sit around waiting for those stoplights to turn green. 
Things mm -hmm. will never be perfect. The timing will never be right. So what do you do? You create it. You adapt. You think about all whatever your plan is. There's no flaws in your business plan. It's just a series of continual adjustments. You don't even think about, ah, I got the plan wrong. The hell with the plan. Everything is action and reaction. And to act is to react. And that's what I learned even before I became a mountaineer where it really brought to life because now I'm in the elements and I, I could die if I fall off a cliff. In the business world, there was never any threat of death, but there, the stakes were high in that what I learned in my years in working that organization, it's just a series of continual adjustments. Sit around, wait for the world to be perfect. You're not going to be hired by that organization. Understand this road, mountain, whatever we're on, is just twist and turns. And I'm stoic in my reaction to that. Not emotionalness, not unfeeling. But when I think about stoicism as a philosophy, what it really represents is all of these things that happen, how do we react to those circumstances, then act accordingly. Mm. And I think that that's, for that number four of adaptability, that's the way I think about it. I've never, ever, and maybe it's part natural, part just knowing how to, how to make a career tick is knowing that everything is about a series of adjustments. Yeah. And I, and I love the metaphors. I love the, like the physical activity to, you know, mental activities or business. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a runner too. And you, you know, about my history with back on my feet, but I always have said that too, of when I, when my dad and mom separated because my dad's addicted and I started running. It's like, I learned metaphorically to take things one step at a time. Right. I knew if I kept going that the road would get smoother, that there would be less potholes. And I would, if I just made it over the hill, the hill wouldn't exist anymore, but I had to do the work. Yeah. And yeah, I can't, if I want to go run 10 miles, I don't just go number one and number 10. I've got to do all the work in between, which isn't glamorous to get to the finish. I was just like, oh my gosh, this makes so, so by doing that physical activity and the work that transcended into the way that I approach things mentally. So yet yeah, yeah, the mountaineering, you know, again, allows you to have this great physical challenge, but you apply the same strategy when you're out on a mountain that you do when you're sitting in, you know, a boardroom. Yeah. In fact, I found throughout the course, I started marathoning in my mid-20s. I started climbing mountains when I was 42. But I found a lot of parallels. I think about the three dimensions of my life, my, my life, my personal life, my career, and this other thing that I do in my mountaineering and my physical world. There, 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 there's, there's a bullseye. There is mm -hmm. an intersection that, that they all have a lot in common. You're setting goals. You're taking a step at a time, but the most important part in mountaineering, in careers, in our lives, with our partners and children, you can't do it alone. That's mountaineering. And when I started mountaineering, taking a step at a time, it was sometimes you're feeling absolutely awful. I lost 15 pounds on many expeditions and just feeling nauseous. Yeah. Yet, when I think about what did we do to get there? There's no shortcuts to the top of any mountain I ever climbed. No shortcuts to the business that you've developed. It's just that step. And, and that's a mindset. And, and recognizing it's cool. Just step. The most important step is your next one. Right. And do, you and do you find, Chuck, too, because this worked in my benefit, but people think that the people that end up doing things, that everything must have been lined up perfectly for them to do that. And they create the story that, well, they were able to do that because all of the lights were green. And the reality is that is not the case and you need to stop making yourself the exception. The more you convince yourself that you are the anomaly and that everybody else's timing and circumstances were, you're never gonna do it. Like it, it's, it's, it's recognizing that anybody who's done anything great or successful or that you admire, it's the same path that you need to go on as well. Well, I think you, I, I'm, I'm going to accept on faith you've seen this, but what I do, particularly as a coach, I work with people who have perf perfectionist tendencies. And one of the things that I do with everyone that I coach, I give them an assessment. My partner is a neuroscientist at USC. He developed an assessment called Measuring Your Natural Tendencies. And almost to the people that have those perfectionist tendencies, I need all of the stoplights to be green. 
it's not that they don't know it. They don't understand the implications of how that impedes their success. Mm -hmm. But again, back to evidence, relevance, and consequence, you almost have to put that perfectionist natural tendency in front of them and help them understand the impediments of approaching things with your perfectionist tendencies. So part of what I came to find out in coaching, they're scared to death. The amount of fear that is pervasive when they step on stage or they go into a meeting, they're so locked up because the fear is preventing them from even speaking or doing anything because if I can't get it perfect, don't bother. I said, that's insanity. If you're in a press conference and they ask you a question and you don't like the question, you can't say, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. Can I think about it? No. Mm-hmm. Answer the question. But what you're describing is so prevalent in many people who are aspiring career climbers, but only get halfway up the mountain and then wonder why. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't allow themselves permissions to be imperfect. They didn't allow themselves permission to make mistakes. And they didn't recognize that everything is about striving for progress, not perfection. But the education model is the person that gets a 4.0 on their exam is perfect. They're the smartest person in the classroom. This and they get just, rewarded. Right. Right. And and it is, I, I just think it's a colossal disservice because it's not giving them the mindset of the adaptability that you and I came to understand to build our own careers and everybody's careers, not just us. Yeah, I, 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 totally. So if I'm if I'm sitting here with you today and I and, and you're working with me, Chuck, and I say, oh, you know, I've been wanting to, you know, lose weight. Let's just say I, I've been talking about losing 20 pounds the last five years of my life and I still haven't been able to do it. What do you say to me? Yeah. Um, well, we first have to identify the thing that is prohibiting you from your goal. So I wouldn't say and I wouldn't make any statements. I'd start to ask questions. I would be very much in the lines of inquiry, being inquisitive, trying to help you to understand and to be able to answer your own questions. And for the weight loss, when I was 13 years old, I dealt with my own obesity crisis. I was 13 years old. I was four inches shorter than I am now, and I weighed 207 pounds. Mm -hmm. I lost 60 pounds in high school. So that is a very personal one to me because I knew that when people are trying to figure out how to lose weight, and I'm just using this as a metaphor for, for someone else, until they come to the conclusion to be honest with themselves as why they're not helping themselves and they're hurting themselves, it's never going to work. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question in more general terms, as a good coach, we're asking the right questions. We're not ordering. We're not commanding. We're not telling them what to do because nobody needs to be told what to do, Ann. I have, I, no one, no, people know right from wrong. You don't have to tell someone to do something, but people need to be inspired to do it, which mm -hmm. is why Weight Watchers as a community was built because people inspire each other. So when I coach you for losing weight, let's think about and let's talk about, tell me your eating habits, explain them to me. Tell me why it is you're reaching for the sugar and the flour and not the pineapple. Okay. Mm -hmm. and so often what you start to uncover, the fears, the addictions, all of the things that oftentimes they're afraid to even admit to themselves. But when you build the intimacy as a trusted partner and they know you're not here to judge them, you're here to help them, mm -hmm. to instruct, to inspire. That's what good teachers and good mountain guides do. That's the approach that I take that often it could take two or three meetings, maybe even more. To, I, I, we, we need to build the foundation of your behaviors that are impeding your progress. And it's just not that simple. So I have assessments, natural tendencies, help them to see evidence, relevance, consequence. And I will say this, Anne, the biggest conclusion that I found about why people change, and it's, it's a bit sad because it's not what I expected. People change mostly when something they value is threatened. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I had a naive notion when I started coaching. Everybody would welcome my coaching because I can help them get better at whatever that is. 
And what I found is, no, it's just too hard. But when you put their feet to the fire, like why Tony Robbins has us walk over those hot coals, something they value is threatened. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden they need to change. And I think that's a bad place to change. But people carry those fears and those threats and we need to understand what they are to help them come to terms with them so they can better help themselves. Well, that's one of my five questions for you. One of those questions is why do you think people change? And everybody that I've talked to so far has said pain. You just put it in an eloquent way of it's something is threatened, whether it is, you know, your your sanity, your happiness, your you, you know, your emotions, something has to be there for you to do it. And the thing about the 20 pounds, Chuck, that I sometimes uncover with folks, sometimes it's it's that they actually don't want it. You just think all along that you've wanted that the 20 pounds is actually in the way of your happiness. And you've bought in, you've been indoctrinated by society that thin people are happier. So this must be the thing. But if you really wanted it, wouldn't you have done something about it? So what is it actually that we need to focus on? And I think that's such an important thing for people because so many of us, especially when we're younger, we play somebody else's game. We have been told what we should want. We have been told what gets rewarded. So we start chasing that thing that has no importance or priority in our own life. And that's a really valuable lesson and exercise to do is is getting really clear on what you want your life to look like, what are your priorities and why, and try to articulate them as much as possible, because those are the things that drive you. I tell people to pay attention to what you do on a voluntary basis. You know, when they're trying to figure out their passions, what what is it you gravitate to? What kind of books are you reading? What kind of, what what habits, activities do you do that that no one has to tell you to do? And I think that can help people um, help people a lot. Okay, we are unfortunately getting close to our time. I, everybody that I've talked to, I'm like, oh my god, I could talk to you guys for three four hours because it's just such valuable insight. And one thing I want to say is, anybody who knows me knows I am a huge advocate for getting a coach, for getting a therapist. And there's so many people out there, guys, that we spend so much money on things with no ROI, going out to, to dinner, spending money on food, sending, spending money on clothes, spending money on items or things, investing in a coach and a therapist to learn about yourself, your actions, your behaviors, your wants, your needs. It is some of the best money that you can spend to invest in your happiness, your success, your fulfillment, and your peace of mind. I couldn't agree more. And when I think about all of the people that I work with, so many of them in my head, I'm, I'm often thinking about the Rumi, the great poet, Persian philosopher mm-hmm. who said, yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. The wisest people, the most successful people, the ones that work with me that go from zero to 60 in seconds recognize the importance. They, I can try to change the world. I can make it more green. I can try to do all these wonderful idealistic things. But what many people forget along the way is to change themselves. And the majority of people don't know how and don't even know what they want. And if you were to ask 90% of the people, who are you and what do you want? They'll never be able to tell you what coaches do. They help people understand how to answer those questions and to develop a plan to act on those answers. And I think everybody needs that, including me. I've had people that I've worked with as well to help me so I can help others. Yeah, we're, we're lifelong learners. And when, whenever we stop learning, we stop growing. And that, that quote is very similar to Gandhi's, right? Be the things you, you want to see in the world. But it's easier to want everybody else to change and be better. <laughs> and I'll, I'll help everybody do that. But Change yeah, is okay. hard. And people don't like hard. They want easy. Well, this isn't easy. But, well, no mountain, no marathon you ever ran, no mountain I ever climbed was easy. I would not have it any other way. And when people ask about growth, I think if you ask people, I, I say this a lot on my podcast too, do you want to grow? Everybody is going to say yes. And the reality is you want the result of the growth. 
But the growth is the process. The growth is the shedding of the emotional baggage. It's the breaking up with friends that don't serve you. It's maybe moving to a new city. It's maybe getting a divorce. It's taking stock of your of your life and yourself and your actions and your behaviors. And it's not it's not easy. And again, that's why a lot of people, oh, I want change, but most people don't ever do it because of the discomfort that it ensues that that that, that ensues with it. I agree. And I think the uh, purpose of all of ours, all of our education is to learn to act and then to do it and then to forgive yourself when you screw it up and then act yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell us for you, Chuck, and, and I like to say things like, you know, who I am when people say, oh, that's not who I am. I'm like, if you just added a, a something at the end of that, that would say, that's not who I am today. That's not who I am right now. Otherwise we get stuck in our identities because these questions change. You know, I'm sure if I asked these questions to you 20 years ago, they would have a they would have a different answer. So today, for the Chuck I'm talking to today, how do you define success for yourself? Success to me is when I wake up every morning with peace of mind, not a hundred million dollars, not a Ferrari. Yeah. I, don't care, I don't care about that stuff. What I do care about, though, is that my mind is clear, my heart is full, and that I can go about my day on this mountain in the service of someone else. If I have done that, that is a successful day. If I don't do that, I have not had a successful day. Do you remember the time it was not that long ago when, you know, oh my God, I only sleep four hours a night. And it was sort of this badge of honor if you're not sleeping and you're so busy and you're so stressed and it's like, you must be so important. And how everybody wanted to get to that point where they could have such a chaotic life because that meant that we were important. And it's been really nice to feel that transition. I was asked on a podcast recently of what keeps me up at night. And I'm like, nothing. nothing. If something were keeping me up at night, I would be actively solving it. It would have been fixed by now. I'm not going to allow my life to be chaotic that I can't go to sleep at night. Like that's, that, that is not going to serve me or benefit me. And it's my job to make sure that I, I don't let my life get like that. That's exactly my point. I have a friend and we sat there at lunch. He's probably worth a hundred, I don't know, 200. I don't even, I don't care what he's worth. Right. He was gushing on and on about the, the people at work, the, the board meeting I had, the maid didn't clean the house right. The car wasn't fixed. And I said, why? And he was a bundle of, of nervous, toxic energy. And I said, why in God's name do you do this? And he asked me, well, Chuck, what do you do? I read a ton. I work all day to help other people. I kick yeah. back with my family. Every day, I have a peace of mind. I don't have your money. I don't want your money. There's yeah. no money worth stealing or taking my peace of mind. What's Agreed. the point of us living? That is success. And when you have achieved it, all those people that walk into meeting telling me how busy they are, I tell them you might not want to lead with that because I don't care. Right. I know. It's so fun. And that's what I mean about playing somebody else's game. Right. Guess who that game serves? The economy, the, the retail industries, they want you to consume. They want you to want more. And so all of the advertising, the messaging you see, you need to spend money on this. You need to make sure you have this, you know, and, and, and again, we, we eat it up and it takes real, it, sometimes it takes going through it to realize, oh, this actually isn't making me happy. And I'm stressed out all the time. And like, is this what I, what I really want? Have you, we're going over our time. I don't care. Have you, have you heard the, the Mexican fisherman, um, fable and, and, and story? Mm, I might have in another form. Sure, okay, please. I will be very quick with it. But in yeah. essence, there's this Mexican fisherman who's coming back from fishing and there's a, this American businessman who sees him and he has, you know, 10 fish or something in his boat. Is it how long were you out there? Oh, an, an hour and a half. You're out there an hour and a half and caught this many fish. Oh, my goodness. You know, you need to get a bigger boat and you need to go fish more. And once we do that, then we could build your own company and then you could <laughs> do this and, 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 and then we could IPO and all these things. And the fisherman just continues to ask, what for, what for, what for? And at the end, he says, well, what for? Then you can move to a Mexican village and then you can fish in the morning. And then you can go have wine with your, you know, and he's like, I do all of that now. So it's, again, we yes. try to get these, all these things Love in that. order to have the simplicity of the life that many of us already have. 
Right. And I do, I do want to add one thing. I know we're over time, but I think it's important. And I want to give a moment of empathy here. Sure. Many of my students work very hard to live up to the expectations of their parents. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. And, and I'm not speaking in any particular culture. I'm just speaking overall that at the age of 19, 20, 21, whatever that is, we're very different people. But we're not living or, or nor do they feel they have the permission to live their own life. What I hope you and I and we can accomplish, whether it's together on this podcast in any form, I think part of our mission is to help people to free themselves of those external expectations and help them decide what they want in spite of the fact that it may be contrary to what other people say they want. And I think to me, that is the biggest failing in our society that is causing anger and derision. I hope, and this is just my own personal space, I hope one day however it comes out, that people can say, Chuck, I appreciate you help me to give me myself permission to live up to my expectations, but more importantly, to have the courage to tell the people who wanted something else for me that that's not for me and I've decided on my own path. That, Anne, is a mark I hope that I continually strive to do, but it's a serious societal ill. And until you, me, all of the people in our circle realize that and help people with that, I don't think it's going to improve very much. Yeah, and that's that's very powerful stuff. And I completely agree. One of the things, you know, we both have our own past, but one of the things that I say that I feel I can help people and is my calling is helping people identify the life they want to live and how to live it. And it's probably going to look very different than what somebody else wants for you. And being able to step into that that power and that space, because that's where the happiness lies. If you feel you're spending all of your time living for somebody else, that gets pretty exhausting. No question. We're agreed on that. Um, you've answered so many of my last questions just in your answers, but I want to ask what what is one thing, Chuck, that if if I asked you what people can do today to start living a more optimized life, however the word optimized means to you, what would you tell people? I would tell them that the majority of people don't know what they want or what that even means. What I know is they struggle throughout the unknown and the ambiguity, and then they start in self-complaint and denial, well, I guess it's never going to get any better. Mm-hmm. I say to them, it's never going to get any better if you stay in your own head. We as a society, whether people think it or not, are more communal than people think than give credit for. There are people like you and me and plenty of other people, we don't have a monopoly on generosity, who are there to help. But what I know is that society does not help people come to terms with their ambiguity and that people like us are here to help them if they have the courage to reach out and to look for that help. We have teachers as children. We have coaches as children. Every time we grow up, we have a mentor to help us until we become an adult and we're flying solo. That is insanity because that's not how we got to be 22 right after college. We Mm -hmm. got there because of all of the mentors and all of a sudden you're going to work and you're getting paid. I don't have a mentor. I don't have a teacher. I don't have a guide. I don't have a coach. Oh, I guess that's just the way it is. It is not the way it is. The most important investment you can make is not in the stock market, although you need to build your wealth. The most important investment, what I say to people, is in yourself. That's being honest about who you are or finding someone to help you identify who you are, because in the absence of that, your life will not change one iota. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice. And I think that's a great point for us to end our podcast on. Chuck, this is amazing. I really appreciate your time and energy and all of the um, nuggets and advice that you've given people today. I know folks are going to find it valuable. Where can people find you and get more of this? Well, first, Anne, let me thank you and your entire team. They were wonderful for this collaboration. I am grateful to be able to contribute to this whole program and to have met you. And I hope we find it work together again. You can find me on my website if you can. Also, I'm going to pause you there. Do you guys see that, hear that? That right there was emotional intelligence. That was another example of that right there. Chuck pausing, giving gratitude, not just for me, but for the people who helped make this happen. 
Um, just giving you little examples when it happens. Please continue. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you to the team. They were wonderful to work with here. And I think Cammie's still on. If you're on, thank you for getting us here. But if, if you're watching us, you can see in the back, my book is called The Climb to the Top. My website is my name, chuckgarcia.com. You can just go to my site, click on the contact tab, reach out. I'll also leave you my email address. The company of my name, the, the name of my company is called Climb Leadership, as in Climb a Mountain. Chuck at climbleadership.com. And you can always see us on Instagram and LinkedIn. And I think go to LinkedIn, Chuck Garcia. You can get me there as well. So there's, there's plenty of avenues to find each other. Amazing. Um, Chuck, thank you so much. I look forward to continuing talking with you offline and getting to know you better. But thanks again for your time today. The pleasure is all mine. And thank you so much for your time and for your generosity.